Let's pray as we begin uh, this time. Let your gospel, O Lord, come to us in word, but also in power and in much assurance and in the Holy Spirit that we may be guided into all truth and strengthened unto all obedience, enduring of your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of the faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The passage that I'll be going over this morning with you all is from 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be going over the entire chapter. However, uh, what I'll read for you this morning will only be from verses 1 through 18. But I'll be going over the entire chapter all the way until verse 25. once you have found it, uh, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it testify against me and I will restore it to you they said you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the land of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord God, your God, was your king. Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this morning we go over the idea of covenant. Covenant. If you've taken any level of pre-marriage counseling sessions with me, this is the primary idea that covers every other topic going forward in those counseling sessions. A covenant may be like a contract, but it is not just a contract. Uh, the New America of 1776 had an ethos of freedom that they believed to be absolutely essential if they were going to be prosperous. They needed to commit themselves to a new form of governance, and to do that, they would need to give one another mutual voluntary trust. And it was this commitment, commitment to a binding set of laws, a constitutional rule of law, that a higher purpose a vision of a true nation could be lived out. So you would bind yourselves to these set of laws so that you can live out a higher set of purpose, a vision of a true nation. You have probably heard of the concept if you grew up in our education system that we are a nation of laws, not a nation of men. And so the idea of covenant is very strong in the United States. And the idea of covenant also is definitively displayed in marriage between a man and his wife. It's when a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves or clings to his wife. And this idea of cleaving or clinging is where we get the word for union or to become one. So in a covenant, you are so joined together that you are not two any longer, but you are essentially one. And so when one would then break the covenant, it is not like breaking a contract where you may incur some stipulated penalty, but what you do when you break the covenant is you tear apart what was joined together. In Genesis 15, when God would instate a covenant with Abraham, back then it was Abram, he would tell Abram to get a heifer or cow, goat, ram, and two birds. One was a turtle dove and one was a young pigeon. I don't know the difference between the two, but they, they are differentiated there. In Genesis 15, Abram would then cut these animals in half. That means he would split them down the middle. And this is a gory picture that signifies not only the completeness of the joining of the parties in a covenant, 
but also the consequences of breaking it as well. In ancient times, parties fettered by a covenant, particularly to a great king, would have these stipulations common to the primary obligation of the vassals to the king was a total, undivided, exclusive loyalty and fidelity to their king and benefactor. In this, Israel failed. In her passion for another king, Israel rejected her only king, Yahweh. And now the covenant must be renewed. And we saw that the renewal process start to take place in the chapter before. And we continue on in this chapter, in chapter 12. And so I have three points for you this morning. And that is the building of the case, the trembling of the people, and the grace that is given. The building of the case, the trembling of the people, and the grace that is given. The building of the case, that's from verses 1 through 15. Before Samuel builds his case against Israel, he first asks for his testimony from Israel to vindicate his leadership. Meaning, he asks, has he in any way broken the covenant with the people that he was to lead? And he doesn't hide anything from the people not his age or even his sons. He brings even his sons out and asks them to audit his leadership. Did he take anything from anyone? Accept any bribes or payoffs for his judgments? Review all the records and see where he would act unjustly and he would pay every cent back. Was there any real defect in his character or his leadership? And that's what he posed to the people before he moved on. Imagine our leaders and politicians doing that today. If they were to come out and say, review all the records, here it is, all out before you, nothing hidden, no record, have I ever done unjustly? How do you think it would play out today? But Samuel does this. And he is vindicated, the Lord as his witness. And after that, what he does is he turns now to the people of Israel. You know, if you are reading this passage carefully, look for the word now. Every time now comes up, there's something going on. But he turns now to the people of Israel. Not only has Samuel been faithful to the point that he wanted to move on, but even more so than Samuel, it was, this was the point that he wanted to move on to. The Lord has been faithful. Even more so than Samuel, the Lord has been faithful. And Samuel goes through the redemptive acts throughout Israel's history. And he's pointing out the Lord's righteous acts. He's showing a pattern evident throughout her history. There is a crisis. The people cry out for help, and then God raises up leaders to deliver them. That's the pattern evident throughout Israel's history. There is a crisis, the people cry out for help, and then God raises up leaders to deliver them. So remember Egypt, the extreme bondage of slavery that they faced. They cried out for relief. 
God sends Moses and Aaron to deliver them. Remember the period of judges. Oppression came from their surrounding enemies. They had worshipped other gods and idols, the Baal and the Ashtaroth. So they cry out for help. And so God sends Jerubal, a.k.a. Gideon. But Jerubal means to fight against Baal or Baal. There's Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel himself. With each crisis, which was a result of their own making, it was because of sin that they had these crises. God, however, was faithful and raised the leader to deliver his people. And all these were really trying times. But with each new crisis that they faced, it's almost as it's almost as if they would forget about the previous deliverance by God. You see, the most recent crisis seems to feel like the worst crisis you've ever had. I don't know if you remember when you were younger, but perhaps you were studying for college entrance, entrance exams and preparing applications, and that felt like it was the worst crisis of your life until you go to college. Then it's about finding a job. And look at the job market. How will you ever find a job in this economy until you find a job? Then it's getting married, having kids, raising your kids, sending your kids to college, retiring, etc. With each new crisis, you start all over fretting and worrying about the same things the same way as you did in your previous crisis. That's the pattern that we see. Well, that is until Nahash comes out, and he comes out gouging people's eyes out, right? It's bad. It's, it's really bad. But is it that much more worse than the other times God delivered them? Is every new crisis that much more worse than the crisis that you had previously? But this time with Nahash, they don't cry out for help. They don't cry out for help, but instead demand for a king. Instead of asking God, Yahweh, the God who was and is and is to come for help, they dictate to God in what way they should receive future deliverance. They don't want God's rule, but a new form of government. In verse 12, Samuel says what they said. No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord God was your king. So now they have their king and there are only two choices going forward. Either you live faithfully under God's word or suffer under God's hand. But here's the point. Many times with the latest crisis, you tend to doubt God's provision, his goodness even, and believe that you could do better if only you had the means. And while your answer in rebellion against God may not be seemingly loud or defiant, it is still faithless, albeit quiet, low-key, and private. And that's the prophet's case against you. The next section is called The Trembling of the People in verses 16 to 19, the trembling of the people. I had mentioned, but with each new section of Samuel's argument, he starts with the word now. 
And here is not a new argument, but a connection to the previous ones. In case you thought that Samuel was done with his case now, and now you can interject, you thought wrong. In verses 16 and 17, this is what he says, Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Samuel not only reasons with Israel, and this is what God does. Even in Isaiah, God says, let us reason together. But he not only reasons with Israel by giving them this airtight case against them, but he continues and goes on even further. Have you ever tried to reason with a three-year-old when they are set in their ways? Your argument can be flawless. The evidence stacked up clearly against them. But will it convince them? What if I said that age didn't matter if you are actually still set in your ways? Arguments can be flawless, but will it convince you? Or do you instead see how inclined you are to defend your position, even if it's with some tripe about how God would love you unconditionally no matter what? That's a false statement, by the way. So what does a good parent do when their toddler doesn't listen to reason? Well, you grab their attention by showing them that you mean business. And that's what severe thunderstorms do. They grab, their, grab your attention. They grab our attention even when we're indoors, when we have a severe thunderstorm. But if you think about it, would a severe thunderstorm really leads you to the great fear that was instilled within the people with Samuel. What about this would cause people to greatly fear? I mean, thunderstorms are bad, but how bad could it be? But it does say all the people were trembling. And all the people were trembling because they knew that this was no ordinary thunder or rain. Samuel starts off by asking rhetorically if it's wheat harvest today. It's not just random happenstance that he asks this. What it means is that if it was wheat harvest today, that means it was sometime between May and June. That's the date. And if it's sometime between May and June in Israel at the time, it would mean that they have begun or they are in the middle of dry season it's called dry season because it absolutely doesn't rain. It's not normal for it to rain. It would be the equivalent then here in our time, in this place, perhaps if it snowed several feet during Memorial Day while you're barbecuing, or if a tornado appeared during Christmas. This kind of an event would make you in the very least take a step back, especially if someone had the precursor to say that this event was going to happen. The storm was a sign, and it was one to show the destructive power God had in his hands and how it could easily be brought down to bear 
upon the people. Earlier I referenced Genesis 15 where the animals were severed in half. The severing is brutal and it's torturous. The fact that it was so unexpected though would show you how dire the situation is. And that's when it hit home for the people of Israel. And that's when they were brought to a place of repentance by showing them the severity of God. And to this, some might think, well, isn't that a bit much? You know, God is a God of love, people might respond. By love, I think what they really mean is soft. God is soft. And then, if you continue to think about it, perhaps you may even say this, but is motivation out of fear really the right way to do it? You know, is fear really the right way to do it? And some folk might think that reasoning should be the only method of persuasion to your child. And this is misguided. If there is a true basis for fear, then it must be communicated. If a child keeps playing near a lit stove and reasoning doesn't work, that parent better have a more severe way of communicating those dangers to that child. Motivation by fear is something that we see in the Bible as well. You know, Paul wrote Colossians 3.6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is what he wrote on Colossians 3.6. But he wrote that after he wrote 3.5. And this is what he wrote in Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's when he says afterwards, in verse 6, on account of these things, or on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see, fear of God's wrath can lead the way to repentance. And that is better than tripping and burning your face on the stove. So sometimes pain, while not welcome, can be seen as a blessing to warn us of the greater dangers. The leprous have their nervous system damaged or it continually gets more and more damaged as time goes on. That's what leprosy is. And that means what, what would happen then is if, if you stepped on a rusty nail, you wouldn't feel it. And then it would get infected. Maybe you would get fever or gangrene or a multitude of ailments would set in. That's why you see leprous agents or people who have leprosy have body parts and appendages fall off. That happens because you didn't feel the pain when you ought to have. The severity of God ought to have us tremble. And that is a good thing if it leads to repentance. In Romans 11.22, this is what Paul writes, Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There is grace in trembling 
if it leads to repentance. In fact, the famous hymn has a line that starts with, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And the final point is the grace given from verses 20 to 25. So what happens after God's people commit this grave evil? They would throw away the true king for a making of their own, rebel against the God who saved them time after time after time. He shows them how horrible and vile their sin is, but he also says this, do not be afraid. That's incredible. That statement, do not be afraid, is incredible. Do not be afraid. Don't go wallowing in your shame and guilt. Do not be afraid. Don't get sucked into bitterness and doubt. Do not be afraid. Don't become miserable and stay stagnant. Because God moves his people forward. He moves them from faithlessness to faithfulness. He moves them from sinning against the Lord to instructing them in the good and right way. How can God be so gracious? It is because he is the covenant-keeping God. In Genesis chapter 15, when Abram split the animals in half, it is God and only God that walks through the carcasses. He is the one that keeps his covenant with his people. In verse 22, it says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It was God's decision to have a people, and he will never go back on this decision. In the life of my marriage, uh, my wife and I have gone through various trials and joys. In those times, we have exchanged words of affection, like, I love you, or I'm here for you. And when I say them, sometimes she says them back. Other times she doesn't. Instead, she says this, yeah, you'd better. That's what she says, yeah, you'd better. Yeah, I had better because we have a covenant. God has a covenant with his people and he will keep it for his name's sake. This means his whole being, not just his reputation, the name meaning reputation, his whole being is wrapped up in that promise to his people. God will never abandon the promise he makes with his people. And what the Lord undertakes to do, he will complete because he will not allow for his plans and will to be thwarted. And while it is Samuel who intercedes for the people here, we now know that Samuel pointed to someone far greater. And we have his priestly intercession and prophetic instruction. There is a man who stands in the gap for us before God the one who calls us to take up his yoke, for it is easy. Jesus is the priest, always living to intercede for his weak, sinful, and faltering people. Jesus is the prophet who perfectly instructs his people in his perfect ways. However, however, if you have read 
all of this passage, and you go to verse 25, it seems as though this verse contradicts everything that we have said before, or I have said before. In verse 25, it says, But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So what does this mean? How do we make, how do we make sense of this? And I believe the key is in understanding the verses before it. In verse 23, Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. I think this is the key to understanding verse 25, that if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and the king that you wanted. So how do you then know that you are part of God's people? How do you know you're part of God's elect? And there's three points to that one. One, you get instructed in the good and the right way. That means you continue on in God's grace. Continuing on into God's grace means you don't continue on into God's wrath. With every step that you take, you are further and further going into the grace of God rather than with every step you're taking, you go further and further into God's wrath. You see this played out not just in your personal lives, but in society in general. The more you step into God's wrath, the further you go down into the path of destruction. And the more you step into God's grace, the further and further you see that God has, is with you is blessing you, is carrying you, is opening your eyes and ears so that you love and you are just in awe, enamored by God's word, empowered by his spirit. But also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they all are not of us. The fold of God stay under his grace. They are instructed in the ways of life and are given the faculties then to carry out those instructions. How do you know you are one of God's elect or his people? Number two is that you fear God and you serve him faithfully with all your heart. Fearing God is indeed fearing his wrath and discipline. That's something that we know is fearing God. But it also encompasses a reverent fear where you don't want to let down or disappoint the one that you love. Just as an obedient child would have a reverent fear for their father, we too ought to have this reverent fear albeit to an exponentially greater degree, for we are now referring to God. And instead of a faithless life, you ought to serve him faithfully with all your heart. You see, it's under this marriage covenant that you can truly love your spouse and freely serve them without holding anything back. That's why God gave us the covenant, so that we can fully and freely love in the same way, in this covenant of grace, you are now free to faithfully serve him fully. That means with all your heart, you are free to do this in this covenant. 
Number three, how do you know you're one of God's elector's people? It says here that you consider the great things that he has done for you. It means you worship God. The people of God are worshipers. We love worship precisely because we consider the great things he has done for us. We who were once dead in our trespasses were made alive in Christ. You consider these things, these great things, and we worship God. And we have been granted faith in him as our Lord and our Savior. And this is what John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And it says also in Romans this, then if you are children of God, this is what Romans says, and the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ because God is the one that has pulled us into himself. We are now in his fold. We are his people preserved for glorifying him and living out the joy that he has promised us. And the Spirit bears witness to this, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What glorious privilege. What an undeserved honor. What an amazing grace. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that after the Easter Sunday that we celebrated last week, we are reminded now through your word of the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ, the covenant that has been ratified by you and kept by you. And Lord God, at this time, we also come before you. And if we are living in sin, we want to, just as Samuel the prophet called the Israelites to do, to renew our covenant with you. Help us now to repent from our sins so that we can turn back and walk in the light of grace that you have for your people. Let's take this time to pray. And as the Spirit of God instructs us and convicts us, is there an area in your life that you need to live up and give up to God? We give it up to him now in prayer. And may his mercy cover your life. Let's pray.